Hi, welcome to Skip's Corner, where I cover Nashville's baseball history and events and introduce you to players, coaches, and other fans. I'm sure you've heard the term barnstorming. Uh, Over the years, there have been baseball teams who barnstormed, and you may have thought of them as teams without a home. Well, that might be true, but let me first try to explain what barnstorming meant. In olden days, barnstorming meant to tour rural districts, giving theatrical performances originally and often in barns, such as the acting troupe barnstormed up and down both coasts and eventually played New York. Or too often today, we put it in the context of politics to make a rapid tour of an area as part of a political campaign, such as so-and-so was barnstorming down in West Tennessee to drum up votes. It could also mean to travel around giving exhibitions of flying and performing aeronautical stunts, especially after World War I ended, and there was a surplus of biplanes and other aircraft, and barnstorming became a popular occupation among many trained pilots. For some reason, I often think of Jim Bob from the popular Walton's series who always was fascinated with aviation, had his own aviation helmet, and always had a passion for aviation, wanted to become an airplane pilot in the Air Force. I'm digressing, but I also remember Robert Redford in a great movie about barnstorming, the great Waldo Pepper from the mid-1970s. Well, I'm going to reel myself in right here and get back to the subject at hand, baseball. In the early years of the 20th century, baseball players would often form a team to go on the road for several weeks, visiting towns where fans were thirsty to see their favorite player in action. Barnstorming by baseball teams once the regular season ended was often lucrative too, and profits could generate more income than a yearly salary. You may know that in the 1920s and beyond, Babe Ruth and Lou Gehrig formed two teams for successful tours, the Bustin' Babes and the LaRupin' Lou's. Now, those two teams would travel on train together, probably have meals together, play games together, sleep in the same Ralph car, but they would play games in a lot of small towns, but the fans just would come out because otherwise they would not get to see these two famous ball players and the team that they brought with them play a baseball game. Now, when the Negro National League was formed in 1920, many of the ball clubs who came together were mainstays of barnstorming, including Rube Foster's Chicago American Giants and J.L. Wilkinson's Kansas City Monarchs, who drew players from his all-nations barnstorming team. And the New York Colored Giants and the New York Cubans come to mind, too. As early as 1910, the Nashville Standard Giants, which I think is the forerunner to becoming the Nashville Elite Giants, went on barnstorming tours. They go to New Orleans, Hopkinsville even, Atlanta, other places closer like Memphis to play. Later on, some Negro League teams would drop out of a regular season schedule to play in town-to-town games, sometimes on a day's notice because there was more money by barnstorming. Big crowds would turn out to see players that had only been heard about in the newspaper, especially in towns that were far away from the major leagues. In some cases, a black team would play a white team, and teams might be integrated even though their major leagues were not. Now, the practice continued through the 1940s, but became less popular 
has baseball become integrated beginning in 1947? As you might expect, all eyes were on Brooklyn once Jackie Robinson began playing for the Dodgers. Newspapers would carry big headlines and radio broadcasts stretched from coast to coast and fans could read and hear and sense the action of the games. Boxing great Joe Lewis had his own team, the Brown Bombers, in as early as 1937, and old Satchmo, Louis Armstrong, had his own team, and they played in towns they were to perform in. But then because of the popularity and because of the money that was available, more pros started their own teams, Jackie Robinson, Satchel Page, Dizzy Dean, Roy Campanella, Willie Mays, and Bob Feller would form barnstorming teams over the years. And at times, they would play at Sulfordale, too. Now, to digress again, this time to softball, would you remember Eddie Fainer and the King and his court? His group was made up of four players, himself as a pitcher. He had a catcher, a first baseman, and a shortstop. And that's all. And they toured across the country for over 30 years. Eddie Fainer was a great pitcher, a softball pitcher. He could strike you out blindfolded, not you being blindfolded, him blindfolded, and often from second base. He was so good, and so few players would hit against him. He didn't need outfielders. But then do you remember when Hall of Fame member Phil Necro was manager of the Silver Bullets, an all-girls baseball team sponsored by Coors Beer? Both of these, Eddie Fainer's King and His Court and the Silver Bullets, were barnstorming teams. So, yes, they didn't have a home place to play but they went all over the country and they'd made money doing so. Now, whether these were successful enterprises remains to be seen, but especially in the 1950s, barnstorming tours were falling victim to the radio and television coverage of the game, where once cities and towns with no major league teams were excited for these exhibition games, the novelty had now worn off thanks to those advances in technology. I'm digressing from baseball just a little bit here, but I'll come back to it if you bear with me. Some of us old-timers will remember the name Bobby Riggs, a tennis star who became a promoter of a barnstorming tour in 1950, along with Washington Senator's co-owner, John Hackham. Riggs had experience in the business of tennis matches, and he and Hackham thought they could capitalize on what had once been an off-season highlight. And in September of 1950, Riggs announced in New York that a 28-city, 32-game tour would begin on October the 10th in Montreal. Cities on the circuit would include Syracuse, Rochester, Miami, New Orleans, Nashville, Fort Worth, Fresno, Birmingham, and the tour ending in Oakland on November the 5th. And he said that American League stars would face National League stars in the series. Walt Dropo, Al Rosen, Vern Stevens, Dizzy Trout, and Ned Garver were to be just a few of the American leaguers, and Nashville's Clyde McCullough, Sam Jethro, Larry Jansen, Sid Gordon, Alvin Dark, West Westrom, and Red Shandeast were a few of the National League representatives. Well, Ralph Kiner even committed to play in eight of the games. None of the players would earn less than $2,000 for the tour, but Riggs promised the caliber of play would be just as expected during the Major League season. Well, it was not a successful venture. On Sunday, October the 22nd in New Orleans, Riggs called it quits. Between games of the day-night doubleheader, if you can believe it, the National League won the first game 9-8 to and finished off the American League 7-3 to in the second. 
he announced the cancellation of the tour due to poor weather conditions and poor gate receipts. Estimations were that he lost his shirt as only $14,000 had been brought in. Uh, it's hard to pay everybody $2,000 if you only bring in $14,000. And the players agreed to settle for 50% of their contracts, and the debacle cost the partners in the enterprise $70,000. It looked like a sure thing, wrote one sports writer, even though it was obvious that the promoters would have to do better than $125,000 on the four-week junket just to get out of the red. Now, the game scheduled for Nashville on October the 23rd, the next day after the New Orleans cancellation, was to have included additional players like Ted Klazuski, Gil Hodges, Gus Zerniel, and Paul Trout, according to the promoters. Still, it is doubtful very many would have attended the game that was scheduled to be played on Monday. The Washington Senators owner backed out. He did not retain his interest in the Senators even much longer, and while Riggs concentrated on tennis, he continued to promote his game, and it culminated in the Battle of the Sexes, a winner-take-all tennis match played on September the 20th, 1973. I have no doubt that, once again, Riggs lost his shirt as Billie Jean King took three matches from him, 6-4, 6-3, and 6-3. Even in losing, he is given credit for advancing the acceptance and popularity of women's tennis worldwide as over 90 million viewers watched the televised event. Well, you have to hand it to Bobby Riggs. He was trying to take advantage of the successes he had learned from back in the 20s and 30s when Babe Ruth and Lou Gehrig traveled the country on barnstorming tours for Jackie Robinson and Satchel Paige and Willie Mays and Bob Felder to form teams that would travel the country. But it was a different day. Radio and television probably had a lot to do with that. Plus, all the attention had gone to the major leagues with Jackie Robinson and the integration of Major League Baseball had begun. Well, I hope you learned a little bit about barnstorming. If you'd like to write me, give me a comment, give me a suggestion. You can do so at 262downright at gmail.com. I'm grateful that you would listen in. I hope you learned a little something. I'm also grateful to my nephew, David Nipper, who produces my podcast for me. So thank you, David. Come back again another time. Thank you.